millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keen. And today, why booms and busts widen the rich-poor gap? We know the gap between the rich and poor is more than it should be. Even some very rich people agree to that. Warren Buffett said the real problem with the U.S. is the concentration of wealth in the hands of the few, and the country's growing prosperity was disproportionately rewarding people on top. Because that was before Donald Trump introduced tax cuts that would give the rich more gain than anybody else. But we've also seen that divide widen since the 2008 financial crisis. So do booms and busts widen the rich-poor gap? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, one thing Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May agree on is fighting inequality, the burning injustice, as Theresa May called it back in 2016 in her inaugural speech as Prime Minister. Whether she's actually done anything to fix the issue is another matter. But in the United States, the top 20% holds more than 80% of all wealth, and the top 1% owns more than 30%. So what is driving this inequality, and how much does the boom and bust nature of capitalism help to spread the gap. So, Steve, I mean, in part, it, uh, it it's the problem is of wealth is uh, hereditary, isn't it? The, the, there's research from the Institute of Fiscal Studies last year that shows if you are a 42-year-old man with parents who are in the top quintile of income, in other words, if you've got very rich parents, you will earn 88% more than those who come from poor families. So income is clearly passed on. The statistics are supporting that. Yeah, and this is one of the things that conventional economics leaves out completely because they like to work with such things as infinitely lived individuals. And so inheritance, by definition, can't even be considered. Uh, all they have, What they really did, and this goes right back to the 1870s, uh, the previous classical school of economics used to work strictly in terms of social classes. So they talked about workers, capitalists, rentiers, landlords, and Ricardo's main target in free trade, which most people don't realise had really nothing to do with efficiency. It was to get money out of the hands of landlords and into the hands of capitalists. We thought it'd do, use, use the money more productively. Mm. Uh, now, when the neoclassicals came along, bang, that all disappeared, and you start learning instantly about this abstract individual who's simply utility maximising given an income whose source you don't even question when it begins. And then when you talk about multiple in- income in- individuals, rather than having a different income profile, and that making a difference between a rich person and a poor person, again, it's completely ignored. So what we've actually had as a result is a intellectual discipline that is the sort of place you'd expect to study this stuff, which has ignored it until it's become chronic. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's a large part of our problem. Because those three categories still exist, although I guess now, I mean, the, 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 the borders, the boundaries have merged a little bit, haven't they? I, if I'm middle class, I've probably got shares. I'm probably, uh, I'm probably investing. I'm not just a worker. Well, you're enough, we have enough exposure to that for the, for, for the spin to seem convincing because we, you know, most of us, if, we, if you've got a job of almost any description, you've got some sort of link to a pension scheme or a superannuation scheme, and that's buying shares. So you can be fobbed off with the argument, oh, well, you know, if prices go up, your pension 
uh, fund improves, et cetera, et cetera. But as you're saying, and this is what Piketty's research very uh, thankfully revealed and became well publicised, there's an enormous disparity in how much is owned by uh, the middle class, and you can extend the middle class to you know, like something of the order of, if you're in the middle plus poor, you're talking about 80 or 90% of the population. Uh, you can extend it to that level. And even though, yes, a fair proportion of those are going to have indirect, sometimes direct uh, ownership of shares, the vast majority is held by the, you said, the top 20 and in particular the top one, and you get down to the top 0.1%. Mm. Now, I'm just going to start with something that people might That is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, because when you look at uh, any system which involves distribution, uh, which, which involves interacting elements, in other words, um, not taking with something you can't take a place in isolation, but you've got to look at how things link with other things. Uh, you can't study earthquakes, for example, without uh, realising that an earthquake in one spot is going to change the, lo- the relative location of the crust somewhere else, and therefore there'll be a chain reaction, right. or can be a chain reaction between earthquakes. Exactly the same thing applies with income. And now, when you even even without hang, hang on, this, it sounds like you're arguing the trickle down effect here. No, so. I'm not. I'm arguing that there's going to be what's called a power law relationship between the rich and the poor, and that it, it, it sounds strange, but it, it can be easily explained. This is some beautiful work done by uh, a few uh, very erudite physicists, particularly a guy called Perbach, another one called Ilya Priyajan, um, they showed that if you plotted, let's say you're talking about the percentage of the population, uh, on the, you put the percentage on the bottom axis. The percentage is actually effectively a logarithmic scale. It's, it's related to the, to the so, so a mathematician will say if you plot the log of uh, the size of something against the log of the number of instances, you get a straight line yeah. jargon. So let's yeah. just try to unpack that. If you put the percentage of wealthy people on one axis and the percentage of wealth on the other, uh, then you will find a straight line relationship between the two. Now, what that means is that the, the people in the top 1% are going to be earning like 10% as much as those in the top 10%, you'll be earning 10 times as much as the entire population. So you, you do get concentration. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's when it becomes dysfunctional that matters. And yeah. in my opinion, it's been dysfunctional and getting worse for the last 30 years. Well, doesn't it become, I mean, I guess no one really cares how much those people at the top end are, are earning. Good luck to them tends to be the, uh, the the common response, doesn't it? It's only if it hurts the people at the bottom, then it becomes well, an issue. Well, if you look in America, definitely that's the attitude. There's, a, there's an aspirational element to American culture. And mm. so even if they're poor and they see somebody rich, they don't think of that bastard gets more than I do, which might be an English attitude. A UK attitude. Uh, they they think, oh gee, I can get. I'd like to be like him. Like, how do I emulate? And I, I, actually, the, my book, "Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis," is sold fairly well in the UK, but pretty poorly in America. And I had a meeting with the publisher a couple of days, and I said, you know, I bet if we change it around to how to avoid the next financial crisis, it'd sell a bomb <laughs> in America. <laughs> because we can all do it. Absolutely, That's everyone right. everyone can play it. their yeah. part. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, so the, this- but the idea of these people at the top of your logarithmic scale, I mean, you know. Who cares, uh, irrespective of your attitude generally? If someone's making money and it doesn't interf- interfere with me, then that that's all fine. It's when, yeah. it, when it's when it impacts me or the poor people uh, that well, we care about. The, that's the and issue. That, that, and that's what's happened. So if you take, if you go back to nineteen fifties and sixties America, the inequality was nowhere near as high as it is now, but it was still existed. You know, still had you know the, the Carnegies and so on, and their descendants, the Kennedys, for that matter. Um, you still had enormously wealthy families. Um, and but the thing is, the average American was earning a, a better salary 
than they got, obviously, during the Great Depression, uh, better than they did during the 1920s in, in relative terms compared to the wealthy back then. And there was a sense that we're building this country together and, you know, Ford's whole idea of not being Henry Ford was, was a very mixed character, let's put mm. it mildly. However, his attitude was that, and he knew, understood money, which is quite intriguing. He he understood money's uh, creation in a way that most conventional economists these days still don't understand it. Uh, but his attitude was, when it came to paying his workers, he wanted to pay his workers a wage so much that they could, it was sufficient to them to buy buy the cars they were making. Right. And there, and there was that sense as well in America <clears> at the time that that was the nature of society. So he didn't mind about inequality because you were doing well and getting better over time. That came to a crunching halt in 1973. And uh, it's taken a long time for, the, for this to seep through. But if you do the, the data on the percentage share of America's income that goes to workers, uh, it was remaining fairly constant until about 1973, and then it's plunged. And then if you, if you look at the real wage, that also has flatlined pretty much since 1973-75. So for 40 years now, uh, when you deflate you know, the increase in prices by... You know, the, the, the deflate G- GDP by the increase in prices. Look how much of that is going to work. Because what sort of way, what return are they getting? They're in real terms no better off than they were in the mid seventies. Right. So because we because there's a, clearly there's a tipping point, isn't there? Where you get yeah. below a certain wage, you can't afford to buy stuff which is keeping the economy going. I think there's another factor as well. If you get below a certain wage, you actually can't afford to spend time with your kids, for example, and look after their education and make sure that they are passed on to. Uh, and that, to, and that's to, also to, a to zero. With zero, the wonderful things called zero-hour contracts, because yeah. if you if you're so-called gig economy, I'm having I'm in part of a debate about this in Brussels in a couple of weeks' time. So-called gig economy, that's putting a nice positive spin on the fact that you can't uh, you you no longer have a guaranteed wage and a guaranteed income, uh, and you're they're basically saying we should all be capitalists. I'm sorry, that doesn't work. Um, because the people of the gig economy find themselves not being able to spend time with their kids, not being able to uh, even representation taken to school. They, they, can, they certainly can't buy a property because they can't sign up for a mortgage. So there's lots of ways in which this is now a dysfunctional level of inequality, and it's really the disempowering of the working class that's gone with it as well, uh, which has also been hand-in-hand, of course, with the abolition of trade unions. So um, so what, what's the impact? Why is the boom-bust nature of capitalism then making this, this cyclical nature of capitalism why is it making this uh, this wealth gap this inequality greater this is where i'm people i'm, I'm afraid i'm going to sound like a crack record again people but it comes down to the level of debt now and i better phrase it more sensibly it's the level of claims that people who don't work have on the income stream of the country yeah uh, that's my, that's that sounds a bit rude our bankers say of course we work but no it's this the amount of income <laughs> they earn is relative to this the, the amount of charge they have against those physical assets, whether it's the labour of a worker who's taken out a housing loan or got credit card debt or whether it's the um, uh, output of a factory or uh, and so on uh, or, or the uh, potential capital gains of a speculator, the size of the debt they've got tells you how much that goes to the financial sector, not how long hard bankers work. So bankers are working a lot less hard now than they were in 2007 and they're making uh, just about as much money because the level of the debt they've got uh, as a lean against the rest of the world hasn't gone down all that much. So, um, and yet, you, it, and yet, they'd be the you know they'd be defending. I mean, if you look at the situation now, where maybe you know they've got money that's invested in shares, and we've seen uh, share prices tank, they'd be going, "Well, hang on a second, you know, we've just taken a uh, ten or fifteen percent hit in in our wealth." 
and another 35% and we'll be pretty much back to ordinary levels again. This is the crazy thing. I did a piece which uh, you find in my Patreon blog and also in the Russia Today column I, I do when I look at the case Schiller share price index and that share price index which shows the ratio between current prices and incomes over the last 10 years which therefore gets rid of Ponzi scheme type behavior in the income stream and so on that particular index has only been higher than it was prior to the crash on one occasion and that was the 2000 stock market bubble which was the biggest level of overvaluation in the history of of share prices and the normal level of that ratio between share prices and, and earnings over the previous 10 years. It's called the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. The normal value of that over 140 years is about about 15, uh, 40, 14 or 15. The value in 2000 peaked at 44 and the value, I th- I'm not looking at it straight away on the screen right now, so I can't be for sure, but I think the value peaked at at least 30, uh, 32 or thereabouts this time round. And that took out the previous second place holder, which was 1929. Right. Okay. So that's, that's, that's the level of the, and, and in, in the aftermath of 2000, share prices fell by more than 50%. And by the time they got to the very bottom of their fall, they'd fallen just below the 120 year average. But so they should have stayed back there, and they've been pumped up by bloody um, central banks and QE, in my opinion. Yeah. Okay. For sure. But if, um, at that point, what, Tell me why we would have had a wider, rich, poor gap. Because it, interestingly, in London, it doesn't look like that's happened. In the rest of Britain, it hasn't. In, in other parts of the world. But we'll get back to London in a second. Why would it be that after the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, we had a widening, rich, poor gap? Well, take, take me through step by step what the causes were for that. Well, I've got to go backwards again. And this goes back in my theories once more, because my theoretical work, because there is a direct relationship in, in, the, in, the, in the theory that I have uh, between the value of the, the amount of outstanding debt compared to GDP and the share of income going to the working class. So I'm going to go straight back to class analysis, divide the world into three social classes, workers who work in factories, capitalists who produce goods and services in factories, and bankers who provide the money that the capitalists need to, to borrow when, when the desire to invest to build more factories exceeds their retained earnings. At that extremely simple level, um, the, I simply put together a set of dynamic equations that basically show that workers will, uh, are more likely to get wage rises when employment is high than low, capitalists are more likely to invest money when profit is high than low, and then they've got to pay interest to banks and any money they borrow when their desire to invest exceeds retained earnings. So there's nothing in that which says, and I've, I've, fi- I've fixed it so that it looks like the workers get screwed. There's nothing to do whatsoever with that element to it. When you look at it, when you run the model, the workers get screwed. What actually happens is rather than even though it's capitalists who are borrowing the money to invest and workers in the model have absolutely no debt whatsoever and and don't have any potential to borrow money in in the way that this very simple model, um, even though that's the case, it's the workers' wage wage levels in terms of a share of GDP, which is directly related to the level of debt. The higher the level of debt and the higher interest payments are on debt, the lower the share going to workers. Right. And so what actually happens is is what's called an emergent property in a complex system. And this is the sort of stuff that, you know, I'm trying to get through the thick heads of mainstream economists. I'm certainly trying to get through the, the more, uh, the, the less ossified brains of, of young students of economics. But a complex system 
can have outcomes that you can't you can, that are not built into it and you can't anticipate before so you that, put the models. Let me together. paraphrase. And you, so, so let me paraphrase. And you tell me if I've got this right. Then, based on your theory, but it, but in a nutshell, um, you know, when the chips are down, the economy's struggling, companies are struggling, and they're not selling as much. Um, they've uh, they've got to pay people's wages. They've also got to pay financiers for loans that they've got. Uh, they're still going to have to pay those loans back to financiers. So where can they make cuts? Well, they make cuts by paying people less money. So the that's, poor that, gets that's, that, that sounds like a deliberate thing, and I'm not saying capitalists don't think that way. Uh, some of them, certainly Henry Ford didn't, but a very, very large number do. But in fact, it's against one of these things, which is an emergent property. And the guy that got it right, interesting enough, was a little, little bearded bloke in the late 19th century called Karl Marx, because when he was hypothesizing in, in, in verbal terms about the relationship between the level of employment and the distribution of income, he's ended up saying that uh, and in other words, when he finished talking about the cycle that was he, he worked out in his mind, he was quite right. It was a cyclical system, which is remarkable because he had no mathematics to help him. Um, but what he said at the end of it, in other words, the wage is the dependent variable, not the independent variable. The independent variable is the uh, level of profit or desire to invest. So what he was saying and, and, and what he had was the two-class models with, with workers and capitalists. And he said... Um, when there's a boom going on, the capitalists will want to uh, hire more labour. They drive up the price of labour in doing it, and by driving up the price of labour, they cut back the share they're getting, and therefore they stop investing and you go into a slump. And the economy only returns to a boom again once wages have fallen sufficiently that capitalists now have the same amount of profit they got previously that encourage them to invest, so they go back into investing again. So he's saying it's the level of retained earnings, the level of profit uh, from the capitalists that, that is the determining element in the behavior of the system because they then decide to buy the fact build the factories which need the workers and they hire and they go through a cycle all i added to that and this is uh, uh, was that if they what was effectively in marx's mind and also in the, the mathematical model of it he'd done in 1967 by a brilliant neglected economist called richard goodwin um the what was missing was goodwin and marx both had no role for the bankers and i thought well that's wrong in two ways first of all what they have, they don't have bankers. They've got capitalists effectively only investing out of their own money. And they both basically said they'll invest all they earn, which they don't. My attitude was, well, capitalists want to invest more during a, a, a boom than they have and less during a slump. And that's when they, what do they, how do they modify that? They borrow money from the bank. So their debt rises when, when profits rising, when profit is greater than investment, that it falls when profit is less than investment. And in fact, that's empirically confirmed even by staunch mainstreamers like Famer and French. So that's the third element I added. And then what happened out of it, Marx was still correct. The rate of profit is the determining variable. The level of wages is the independent, is the dependent variable. It's as profit goes up, um, wages, potentially go down but the your point sort of caught up here because when they uh if you look at the rest of the economy from a point of view of, of capitalists they're paying income to either workers or bankers doesn't matter which one mm. now what happens in the model that i've built and was actually happened in the real world in a much rougher way of course was that as they borrowed more money as you said they've got to pay the debt they, they don't have an option not to pay the interest on the debt uh, they've got to service the debt so what happens is as the level of debt rises, the servicing, they've got to do the servicing and the res residual is the level of wages. 
out of that as the debt level rises. Capitalists tend to earn much the same level because it's driven by their responses to what they see as a, a rate of profit that makes it worth their while to invest exactly what they earn. That tends to be the flat line for their income share. Therefore, if you have a rising amount of debt in the economy, uh, you have a falling amount going to the workers. Yeah, and yeah. So fundamentally, it's the workers who pay in terms of distribution of income. Because and it's, the only, because it's the only, only variable ele- element in, in effect. In, in effect, because the, the debts, your debt's a fixed element. Now, you can pay the debt down, of course. That's what capitalists try to do during a, during a slump. Uh, but the point that I, again, made in the thesis to make it straightforward is capitalists borrow money during a boom and have to repay the debt during a slump. So and what you get is a ratcheting up effect. The debt ratchets up over time. Okay. Now, if I can play the role of a uh, an uncaring capitalist bastard in all of this then. You're pretty uh, good at that. I'll give you a, yeah, okay. Right. <laughs> For someone who doesn't have any money. I play, yeah. I did, it's just a fantasy of mine, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, no, definitely not. But, I mean, if you, I mean, isn't the issue in that that cycle that you described that for Marx, I mean, isn't the issue the wages rose? I mean, if the wages didn't rise, then you wouldn't get to this sort of, again, to a tipping point where we started to see things start to slide. But then in that case, what you have is a, the income distribution has a secular trend to it. If the income doesn't rise, well, it does for the capitalists and bankers, then the yeah. workers are being left behind and you get the outcome we've seen since 1973. And this is, um, this, this is the incomes of workers, their bargaining power has fallen so much um, that they are just getting the income um, that they got back in the 70s. They don't have the bargaining power anymore. And, of course, there's a whole lot of stuff that I haven't included in my model, which is quite clearly important. The the offshoring of production uh, in the West, particularly in America, so that um, American workers are now competing with Chinese factories. Uh, Therefore, that's restraining their wages. The deunionization of society in general, yeah. and the well, unemployment to- levels being redefined and redefined in such a way that it actually understates how unemployed people are. Yeah, and automation and stuff like that as well. But, yeah, but the automation on top coming on now in particular, yeah. Yes, but if we if you looked at it all still as a closed system, let's ignore those factors for the moment. You just looked at it as a closed system. Once you've mm. been through a, a, a downturn and you've got this this growing inequality, basically because the workers are are having their uh, their salaries screwed down. Once that once you've through that period, does inequality start to lessen? Do we get a period of recovery before we get before we get you, the next you, bust? You do. It is a cyclical thing. But of course, uh, if, if it, what you get out of the models as well, and you see in the real world too, is a trend to a rising level of debt to GDP. Yeah. Now that rising level of debt to GDP is that rentier claim on the income stream, and as that gets higher, it's not the capitalists who pay with a lower rate of profit. It's the workers that pay with the lower wage, lower wages share. So it gets worse every time. So every time you have a downturn, it's worse than the last time. Right. Yeah. Okay. But But now we've gone on the other side of that. We should have wiped all this stuff out in in, in 2007, in a sense. Uh, The economy would have gone down the gurgler at the same time. Uh, But when you, when you started falling from that peak level of debt, in America's case, profit that peaked at 170% of GDP is now at 150% and rising. it should have, from falling from that peak, there should have been a substantial redistribution in the long term back towards workers. But, of course, that has not happened because what the central banks have done is dive in and drive up share prices yeah. instead and yeah. drive up property prices. So they've done precisely the wrong thing, which we've exactly. we've, we've yeah. talked about numerous times. But just look, getting back to this question about the workers getting hit, I mean, is it um, – is it always the low-end workers that are getting hit? Okay, you've got the investors, you've got the financiers, and we, you know, as you say, 
their, their income is, is, is flatlined because they've got this expectation. Uh, well, they've probably got a very nice house they've got to pay for as well, and uh, they've got to keep up with the neighbours and all that sort of stuff. But I've been in companies where, you know, companies have made cutbacks, and very often they'll get rid of the most expensive people first because they want to maintain their productivity, and often it's the middle management, actually, who are not, uh, you know, the workers are producing the output, the middle management are more strategic in their thinking, and you think, oh, well, we can get rid of strategy because we're in the middle of an economic downturn, so you get rid of the most expensive people. So I'm wondering whether it hits the middle class more than the more than the poor. Um, yeah, well, quite possibly it does to some extent because I mean I lump the middle class in with the workers because mm. they've got to go to work to get you know you don't get paid if you don't turn up and put your backside on a, on an office chair. They're wage. They're uh, all wage slaves. They're all wage slaves in that sense. But, of course, they are the ones which can now be replaced by technology. And, again, I have like a, one of my best uh, best mates, I don't think I've met him yet, he's a computer programmer in Mathematica, and he was the education uh, rep for Mathematica, which was educationally part of their sales system. When they had a downturn, they got rid of him, uh, mm. which he found rather ironic because they cut their access <laughs> to one of the major markets. So I'm not saying companies do this in a sensible way, but, yeah, they can say, okay, where's, where's the fattest stuff? What can we get rid of? And, of course, now because so much is automated and can be further automated, then often the thought is to knock out that middle management layer. Uh, so these days, the, like the workers got hit in a sense, and uh, a separate one to what I'm talking about, the relocation of production. That didn't hit the middle class. That hit the workers in the factories. But now, of course, what we're getting is the capacity to hit the work of the um, middle class as well. So does income inequality make recessions worse are they more uh, extreme because of this inequality well it, again it's what's causing it first of all so a, a debt deflation means demand completely collapses yeah. and that's that's the real hit but yes at the same time it, uh, if you want to get you want to boost the economy you give money to the workers because they'll spend it what have we done instead we're giving it to the people who own shares yeah uh, through QE, so it's had because of the sheer well, we've done scale, that. We've done what, even worse than that. We've done that. Plus, we've introduced austerity measures, so we're making yeah. sure those people have less. Those the, the poorer end of society have less money. Yeah, they've been double. They've done particularly in the UK. They've been done over double. So it's no wonder the level of uh, of anger and dislocation that occurs right now. And this is where Nick Hanner's point comes in. You can't have this level of inequality building up in a capitalist system without something breaking at some point. Breaking in such a terms of as Nick Hanner put it, the pitchforks are coming. So how, do you, so, angry. Yeah, yeah. So, so how do you fix it then? Is it just is it simply a question of welfare? Do you need to make sure that those people uh, at the bottom end of society have got more more money to spend? Well, yes, and that's where I'm in favour of basic income. I know a lot of my um, non-orthodox economic colleagues prefer a job guarantee, but again, because of what I see about happening about technology and employment, I'd rather say we have to say that the society provides a basic level of income for anybody in that society, so nobody has right. to live in poverty or on the streets. And then if you want to do better than that, then get out there and innovate as a capitalist. That's, uh, that's, that's the world that I'd like to see. Uh, but, but, yes, but, but either way, but either way, what they do during the day uh, is sort of irrelevant. It's just making sure that they have the money to spend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If they don't, we're heading right for that dystopia of inequality. And it, I mean, I don't think inequality alone would lead to the sort of breakdown we saw back in the uh, the French Revolution, because you know the classic line from Marie Antoinette: that "People have no bread, let them eat cake," um, uh, and they go storm the Bastille a couple of days later, uh, looking for said cake. Um, that. That type of breakdown is not feasible in a modern capitalist society because uh, people are so just separated. Uh, there's, there's no mass movement in that sense that there could be back um, in the in the, uh, the the French Revolution. But what is likely to happen if we see 
that given all this stuff and putting up with it, you then start to see ecological breakdown. This is what I think is really going to happen. Ecological breakdown gets extreme, and then people say, who the hell's responsible for this? And, you know, you guys were in charge. You can't blame us. And hmm. that that's where I see the attacks, uh, the, the pitchfork side of things coming from. However, uh, that's not going to happen for some time. What is going to happen right now is the, the closest thing people have to a pitchfork today uh, is the electoral box, hmm. the ballot box. And that's what we're seeing. It, it, the, the With so- the rise of Jamie Corbyn and the like. The, yeah, the so-called sensible centre were people who swallowed the idea of identity politics and a small amount of social security being enough to make, make up for the whole neoliberal agenda of privatising everything else. And since that's failed and it's been in, in the background as well as being this debt bubble that, that they don't even know has happened, um, then the response to that is people in the body saying, I'm being screwed over anyway. I might as well vote for somebody like, even if think Trump is a jerk, uh, I might as well vote for him because he'll, you know, as I call him, he's the human hand grenade. We can throw at Washington to say thanks very much for the last 40 years, guys. Mm. And so we see this electoral instability. So rather than the centre, of course, the, 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 the centre right and centre left, the, the typical Democrat, well, <laughs> Democrats and Republicans are, are centre right and centre far right. Um, but uh, in the rest of the world, like Labor versus Conservatives in the UK is, is progressive uh, centre versus um, uh, right centre, and the same in Australia and so on, uh, you're going to go for more extreme parties. You're going to, and the funny thing, actually, one thing I saw, which is quite intriguing, it's not something I've, I've researched myself, of course, apparently, I know when you mentioned the H name, you've lost the argument, but it wasn't the working class that voted for Hitler mm. in the sec. It was actually, the, sorry, it was working class voted for the left-wing candidates. It was the middle class in general who voted for Hitler. Yeah. And this might come back to what you're talking about because, again, the same sorts of dynamics applied back then as apply now, massive rise in inequality due to a stock market bubble in the 1920s uh, that then crashed and left 25% of the population out of a job. And in that situation, political extremes were pushed and left and right extremes came forward, and it was the middle class that voted for the right-wing extreme. So when Jacob Rees-Mogg starts to grow a moustache, uh, we should be worried. Actually, he's a politician from that era as well, isn't he? Possibly uh, possibly it was a bit before that time. But uh, oh, actually, people think he'd want to take us back to those glory days of the 18th century. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So look, finally then, just one fine final point then, and I guess that we've sort of almost covered this, that since 2008, since the recession, 2007, 2008, in London at least, inequality has fallen. Low-income households have seen their income rise 10%. Those at the top have seen it fall 10%. But I guess that gets, and it's actually back to the level supposedly where it was in the mid-1980s. Still huge, but better than mm-hmm. it was. But I guess that gets to the point of, well, it gets worse during the recession. After the recession, it starts to pick up again. The question is, how much does it get hurt in the next recession? Yeah. And um, I mean, also, and I think there's also a factor the to which England's been on a, on a long-term decline. Um, because, again, if you look at the, what jobs can you get, the working class end, uh, 23% of employment used to be in manufacturing. Now it's less of the order of 10%. So even the prospects for, for getting forward when the economy recovers aren't what they used to be. They end up being the, um, the uh, you know, Safeway security t- uh, 
uh, job rather than working on a on a production line. That again is another yeah. issue. And, and looking at London as well, obviously figures are going to get skewed there because a lot of those very low income jobs are probably rising uh, on an average because the very low income jobs have disappeared out of, uh, out of out of London. They just don't exist anymore. So the people on the lowest income are actually people who were probably in jobs before. It's just the jobs beneath them have disappeared. If you see what I mean, so yeah. you skew the statistics that way. Oh well, there we are. We, I think we've explained it all. Uh, great stuff. Thank you very much for your time, Steve. You're welcome, mate. Well, look, next time we've got a, a good meaty one as well. Can fintech beat the banks? Whether it's that peer-to-peer approach that puts lenders and borrowers together or cryptocurrencies that try to develop currency trading without the middleman, technologists are trying to find a way that banks are cut out of the equation. But will they succeed or do we actually need banks? That's next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Join us for that one. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.